co-founder and managing director at MIT Sports Lab, Christina Chase, gave me this recommendation. She said, Thor's awesome. MIT teams can't say enough about him. Those who have had the opportunity to work with him have said it has been some of the best time they could have spent with any individual. So I worked with MIT on their Global Founders Skills Accelerator, working on pitching and presenting skills for their teams. If you'd like to see 80 or more other LinkedIn recommendations, head to LinkedIn and connect with me there if we're not already connected. And let me know if there's anything I can do to assist you. Hey, Ollie. Hey. That's amazing, mate. You come straight in holding always, a mic as if you're on stage. Well, that is true. Well, I always carry this around with me because it's always good to have a spare, but then I use it for, for podcasts and stuff. Yeah. Is the video being used? Should I adjust my camera to look good? You adjust the camera to look good. You never know. We might use the video. Okay. Well, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll a bit more of an effort then. How's, <laughs> how's that? Is that a bit better? I suppose that's a bit better. There we go. That's a bit, bit better, isn't it? We use a, an AI system called video.ai for the video, and it creates its own, it'll like create, I don't know, 50 clips or 20 clips out of any given podcast. That's, am- oh, that's amazing. Well, it is amazing, but it's probably going to choose the bit where you were adjusting yourself there. So we're going to get this clip of you like swimming well, let's, on screen. Let, let's agree that we're starting now. And begin. <laughs> Very good. Well, no, 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 because we can't miss the bit about your microphone. Uh, honestly, I'm, nobody has ever come on with their own handheld mic. That is like proper comedian behavior. Well, is it? I mean, I, I, loads of people that do podcasts walk around with this stuff. And actually, I, I did actually have this observation. I went to Prague about a week ago, and and I, I kind of, it was one of those things where I, I had to remind myself to be grateful that I, hey, I get to go to Prague and do comedy but I was in the middle of a bunch of other stuff and you know I had meetings either side and I was traveling up and down the country and I thought I really can't afford this two days in Prague um and it seemed as I was going to the airport and I was going to Stansted as well so it's really like you know n- nothing good about about that and uh <laughs> and everything in comedy is quite unfamiliar right like you never you're never sure of your audience you're never sure if you're going to get on with the promoter you're never sure. Um, there's just loads of things that you like don't know when you go to travel. One thing which is consistent is on every comedy club stage will be this exact microphone. It's the Shaw SM58 yeah. uh, with a stand. And there's something very kind of familiar that once all of the like the chaos of the travel and once all of the um, what once like all of the admins out the way, the job is actually very very consistent. So you're bringing consistency to your podcasting. And I, well, I like. <laughs> well, I, I, mean, I guess I always know that you know. I, I always remember how to hold one of these things. But I've been told I've got a quite bad mic technique. I, I do let it drop sometimes, but you I'm sure I apparently can get some pills for that. <laughs> you brought your consistency to to the hippie hut, so it is much appreciated. Uh, you brought up Prague. Now that sounds like a big city venue to me, and I thought you were on like a small town tour of Europe. Did I misunderstand that? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, the, to be quite clear, the, the venues that I play, although it's Prague is a big city, they have a small comedy club there. So it's not like I was playing a theatre in Prague. It's a, um, I guess, a hundred seat comedy club, and mm. that's pretty common. I mean, springing up all over Europe now in loads of cities, a little hundred seat comedy clubs. But the unit economics for comedy kind of works, right? You know, it is just one performer, and these people are paying, you know, maybe ten, fifteen euros each. So there is, you know, the, the, the numbers do kind of add up even on a small scale, which is, which is good for someone at my level where generally if I go to a given European city, even somewhere like Paris where the market's really, really quite, quite challenging because there's loads of stuff to do in Paris, I could still sell over the kind of 50 tickets I need in order to make the trip financially worthwhile. That's superb. I also personally, I prefer consumer, being a consumer of comedy in a smaller venue. No offense to the big stadium comedians, but who the fuck wants to go and sit in a stadium for the comedy gig? Like I don't know, it just doesn't feel right for me. Well, I I, um, I deliberately didn't go uh, to watch Peter Kay's tour because I don't want to ruin my memories of him. That my hmm. my memories of I've, I never saw Peter Kay live, but you know, watching all of his DVDs and uh, and whatever uh, as a kid, I, I thought he was just one of the most wonderful comedians, and I kind of don't want to have my my memory of him ruined by seeing him you know as a little dot on a pixel not yeah. doing his best um, but no I, I completely agree i actually just think it's a different product i think up to about 300 seats 
which I'd say most comedy clubs in the UK, like the store, the big room at Top Secret, Comedia Bath, that's one of the bigger ones. They tend to go up to about 300, 400 seats. And I think about then you can still get this sense that the event is really happening live in front of you, right? Yeah. That there's um, Leicester Square Theatre is exactly the same. Leicester Square Theatre, I think, is 400-ish seats. And in theory, you can have a chat with every single person in the room, even someone on the back row. Whereas mm-hmm. I think once you start getting to theatres with like balconies and and bigger spaces, I'm not talking for experience. I've only played the really big rooms a handful of times, but it does feel very very different. Although I'm gonna I'm gonna push back slightly because have you ever seen the the vagina monologues? That uh, I haven't. No. So I haven't. Um, Carol Smiley was a part of the vagina monologues. It was a few years ago at His Majesty's in Aberdeen, and I was up in the gods with my my friend Craig and his wife. And uh, there's this bit in the vagina monologues. It really is about vaginas. There's this bit in the vagina monologues where Carol Smiley said, and the clit fact it's called, and the clit fact is that the clitoris has, it's something like 500 times more nerve endings than the penis. So it's like tough luck lads kind of thing. Like we can have more fun during sex is kind of the idea. So she said at any time, ladies, and there's like 10 to one ratio of women to men in the place. He goes, at any time, ladies, you can just shout out clit fact during this show and i will i will give you the clip fact you oh, really? okay. we're, at the, we're at the interval um i said right craig which one of us is going to shout out for the clip fact obviously one of us has to heckle and shout for the clip fact right and the women are like no you don't do that <laughs> after the interval obviously i'm right up in the gods at the back i don't know thousands of people in the theater and i just yelled out clip fact whole place goes Totally silent. Carol Smiley's like, who is that? Spotlight comes up. <laughs> My missus is like, oh! <laughs> she goes, it's a man. It's a man. So she gave me the clip fat. So, yeah, I know. Usually in a big theater, you can't have a conversation with everybody. But it's me. She didn't engage you in dialogue. Did she give you the fat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she gave me the clip fat. She well, spoke to me. But, yeah, I mean, that's. Well, there we go. Obviously, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, I, I suppose the point is like you, you can't maintain that energy as a long back and forth. You can't be shouting yeah. with that with that cadence when she asks, "Where are you from?" Well, originally Aberdeen, but actually, I'm... <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't work. Well, so funny you should say that, Ollie. Originally, I'm from an island which had about thirty people on it. Now has six people on it. I'm wondering how small a venue would you play? <laughs> oh, great question. Well, at the fringe, there was a chicken coop. Or coop, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. I've never coop. said that word yeah. out loud. Coop. Coop. Um, maybe, maybe I'm kind of o- over Frenching it, you know. Uh, a chicken coup? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, the chickens were revolting. Actually, they were they were yeah. dead against the monarchy, uh, and that I think was four seats. I never got to play it, but I would totally have loved to have done that. I've played to four people before. I actually think that, like, well, I've done Zoom gigs, and that's basically a playing to no one. Yeah, uh, that's pretty soul destroying. But I, I think, like, I, I don't know. I, I think you th- this idea that like you need a certain number of people to make it work is just wrong. Actually, I know the answer to this. Just um, a couple of weeks ago, I went to Paris to do some shows, and I had a friend who was putting on like a a, a comedy night at the Montmartre Comedy Club. I'd never been there before. I thought I should check it out, and he just started his night. And he'd sold four tickets. And and I've actually got jokes about performing to four people, um, although the jokes are a little bit exaggerated. So I was actually interested to see what performing to four people is actually like. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, these four, it was like a lineup show, maybe three or four acts. I was the last one. And these four people were so up for a good time. It was a couple from yeah. the UK and, uh, and, a, and a couple from Europe. And they were just, they brought, they were just so keen to have the show happen. Obviously, you don't perform the jokes. You kind of feel like you're just a bit of a gobshite at a dinner party taking over the yeah. conversation. That's kind of the energy you bring. Yeah. But like, you do feel like an entertainer, right? Like they they did leave feeling really entertained, and it, they didn't see a show. But they, I, I think the closest equivalent is um, I had a couple of friends in Japan that used to work as hostesses. That's that's mm-hmm. their word for it, hostess, where their job is just to wear a nice dress and sit and chat to men and laugh at their jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, you know, the, the, the kind of the feeder end of, of sex work, right? It's just yeah. all they have to do is just look, look, look good and uh, like maybe not get cross if they put their hand on their leg. Um, 
but they said that's basically the job. You just got to like maintain this energy, right? It doesn't really matter what you're talking about. You just got to make them feel fantastic for two hours by making them think that the conversation's going great. And I think, I think that's kind of what I was doing in this uh, Montmartre Comedy Club. So I'm glad you brought up Japan because I've, I've only ever done a stop over there on my way to Australia. So I was just there for like a day oh, and a nice. half, but it still hit me as a, as a cultural experience because, well, partly because the air hostess has got me drunk on sake and business class on the way there. But That's also nice. the place is just so Japanese. Now, I know that sounds weird, but when you live in Western European what countries, an well, you know what I mean? We're, we're all, we're, <laughs> I mean, we do have a huge element of multiculturalism. So to go somewhere that's so Japanese and so immaculate, everything was immaculate. And I, of course, I was only judging it by a bit, the bit of the city I saw briefly and, and the airport and the hotel. So I think you're right. Well, I actually had a joke in my show, which is J- Japan's um, Japan's a weird country where you, you step off the plane, you realize everything's so clean and you're tiptoeing around going, well, I do not want to be the one that fucks this place up. Yeah. Right? Like, you, <laughs> you, you really do feel that way. And I don't think, I actually don't think that you're wrong that like, Basically, all of Japan, and this obviously, this is a huge exaggeration, but all of Japan is sort of the same. And by that, I mean, yes, there's a big concentration of wealth in Tokyo, of course, but there's also poverty in Tokyo. But spread around Japan are seven or eight quite major cities Hiroshima, Kyoto, Osaka, um, Fukuoka, even, you know, Kita Kyushu, which is the, the, the the second city of the island of Kyushu that I lived on. They're all you know they're reasonably they've spread their population out reasonably well and you know yes there's huge like regional variations of food because historically different parts of japan would support different fishing or different farming blah 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 blah. but japan is quite homogenous you know it's it's not like the visual identity of these cities is wildly different up and down the country and i think that is true of lots of other countries particularly countries that haven't had what japan has had which is loads of bombs dropped on it, a bunch of earthquakes and lots of reasons why they would have to just keep rebuilding. So I do think, you know, you can get a sense as you're traveling through the UK, like you can see our stonework, right? And you can see that like, you know, Cotswold stone obviously looks very different to to buildings in uh, sort of the north of England. I think there's very distinctive uh, Edinburgh and Glasgow building styles and, and stone masonry. But Japan doesn't really have that to the same extent as other countries does. So I think, although your observation was try, oh, it all looks so Japanese. It kind of does, right? Japan does have an identity of its own. And uh, it's, but it's also, and there's a really, really good book that's been written about this called, uh, I might have to send you a link to it, um, that's written by someone who was on a podcast that I used to do. His thesis is Japan zoning laws. Like Japan has really, really, really light building regulations. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have like, like in London, if you want to open a takeaway, you better make sure that that building is, for that particular class. And, you know, I think I saw something in the newspaper in Edinburgh the other day, which is like a, cu- a coffee shop, put a deep fat fryer in, a tabletop deep fat fryer, residents complain, gets closed down. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Japan, like, Japan generally yeah. doesn't have like the state intervening in that way. They just have people being considerate about each other. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that means that there's a real, and also just rent is very, very cheap uh, in Japan uh, compared to other things. So there's a real um, like vibrancy to Japanese cities where little nooks and crannies are just used for little pop-up restaurants or pop-up um, mm-hmm. you know, stores. And that, I think, is what creates that unique Japanese aesthetic that just loads is going on. So this reminds me, uh, I want to come back and just ask you a question about Hiroshima. But firstly, all right, <laughs> what was your Paris joke again? Because it was like the opposite of... Tokyo, Tokyo. I saw you do a Paris joke and it cracked oh. me. You were in Paris and the French laughed. Like, what was it again? Uh, do you know what? I, I, <laughs> I don't know, but I can totally believe that it was me saying how dirty the place was. Was it someone ha- having a poo? No, no, no. It was something like Paris. It was like, you guys have done such a great job. You've got this beautiful city, oh, yeah. but it was gone. Yeah, that's the joke. It was um, actually, isn't that funny that going through the roller decks, I've got lots of jokes where I'm mean about France. No, the joke was, Paris, this is such a nice city. Um, if I had a city as nice as yours, I'd also cover it in piss and be rude to tourists so no one else can. <laughs> yeah. I'd hide it. It's like you disguise it with piss and be rude to yeah. tourists. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, that was it. It yeah, was yeah. really good. What I loved but is I, how much the French love that joke. Oh, like, man, they, the they, French they, people are laughing at ourselves. They totally do because I think they see it as true. Well, also, I think the French people do realize how special uh, the city 
for Paris is. But I do also have another joke, which is basically a true story where I spoke to an audience member uh, after a show and, and it was a German guy and I was there with a French comedian. The German guy was like, yeah, Paris is nice, but I saw someone take a shit on the Metro platform last night. And the, um, the, the Parisian, the co- comedian was so calm about it. He took a drag of a cigarette and went, yeah, what time was it? As if, as if like, you know, oh, past 10 p.m., it's all, you know, all bets are off. Go, go mad. If it's 11sies, you can take an 11sies dump. I mean, what's your problem? Yeah, yeah mad. Cool. Uh, Hiroshima, you mentioned it. Somebody, somebody said to me the other day, oh, you know, nuclear war wouldn't be so bad uh, because there's not, there's not enough nuclear bombs to destroy more than the, the area of uh, Greece. And I'm like... Right. I don't know where you've been getting your information, but I'm pretty sure that's not correct. I said, why don't, why don't we maybe ask some Japanese people? Because I'm pretty sure that if one bomb can destroy a city, uh, and that was yeah. 80, 80 years ago or whatever it was, that nowadays the bombs will be rather more significant. I, my question, I guess, was what's the cultural memory of that? Because that's an amazing and horrific thing to happen to a country. Did you get any context yeah, of that? Yeah, I, I, I definitely did. Well, J- Japan's obviously got a really funny relationship with nuclear too, right? Because it also had a, a nuclear spillage. Uh, yeah. had a, 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 a um, yeah, and and so, um, you know, yeah, that's right, Fukushima exactly. So so it's it's not like um, it's not like some other countries which are kind of scared of nuclear, which we kind yeah. of are. Like we'll 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 invest money in Trident, um, but then go, oh, we wouldn't want that on our back on our back uh, back door. It seems like most Japanese school children go to the Hiroshima Peace Museum. Like it seems like that's a bit of a rite of passage. I don't think I've met a Japanese person that hasn't been. It's just like a rite of passage. You go on the Shinkansen at least once in your life. And I do think that museum changes your life. And I do think that shows the power of places like this, where even if you were to watch an hour documentary on Hiroshima, it wouldn't have the, um, or even if you actually, even if you went to a two day seminar on Hiroshima, let's say it probably wouldn't have the same impact as walking around and seeing the artifacts and watching firsthand testimonies. And of course, many people did survive, but their lives were irreparably changed and they've got video evidence to prove it. And obviously, like, there's a little bit of propaganda, you know, like, you cannot tell the story without um, taking a side, and Japan mm-hmm. happened to take Japan's side. So there was a little bit of, like, well, we've done nothing wrong. What's for? This is bad. Uh, which obviously, like, isn't, <laughs> isn't, isn't what history uh, is. Um, but I guess the point of the museum is this isn't about the, like, merits of the war or whether it was effective. It was, like, as a point of humanity, this is too far. Right, like bullet to the head, kill a soldier. Fair enough. That's like that's that's how war still works these days. Um, but I think the point about these bombs was they were the destruction continued for generations. The horror as it went off was like unspeakably bad. That like people were hurting, their skin felt like it was peeling off, and so they sought to take refuge in the river. And then because the river had a bunch of nuclear waste too, that would like fry them alive. It was just. Oh, it was just awful. You just can't imagine how how um, post apocalyptic these scenes must have been. Um, yeah, and I I I went uh, and I actually went with um, another comedian called Josie Long, who was who was on tour. Um, she lives in Scotland now. Uh, who, who was on tour in, in all the in, all the best people do. It's God's yeah. country. We don't we don't have to go in, we don't have to go into Scottish politics. But carry on. We do at least have a mainstream party up here who are anti nuclear bombs. Uh, they're called oh, out. Or Alpa, run by Alex Salmon, who is a little right. disgraced due to various things he allegedly did. But anyway, we I don't think have to go disgraced. down that route. I don't think he's allegedly well, disgraced. Allegedly. I don't think, allegedly I don't think you need to cover yourself. In that don't respect. allegedly up here. There are all kinds of funny things in Scottish politics. But uh, yeah, um, Joseph, that, tell me well, the visitor well, book well, story. Is that is well, that what you're going to tell me? The visitor well, no, book it's just the, Oh, well, I will tell you that. But my point about yeah. Josie Long is, you know, when, when two comics are hanging out, even someone as nice as her, um, you're still kind of cracking jokes and trying to you know everything is a potential observation yeah. or everything is can i talk about this on the show and it was kind of the one time where i've like we just we were just so immersed right like we just didn't yeah. really talk um and you know we're, I, I think we we're both very very moved by it um but yes you're right there in in the visitor book at the end was um was an american um who not really done that work <laughs> not done the reflection yeah. uh, and just wrote there are two sides to every story which uh which which is a bit lamentable but Anyway, I, I think I, I'm like of the view that um, yes, nu- like nuclear, like there should be nuclear disarmament, 
I don't and I don't know if if having is a, if us having Trident is a deterrent or not, but I do know that they shouldn't they just shouldn't be used. They shouldn't exist. They shouldn't be used. And every global leader that has access to nuclear weapons should be forced to go and take the tour around Hiroshima's museum. Yeah, like I because I don't really want to live in a world where we as a country are a victor, but we're living in a world where we've where you know people are dealing with that. No, I agree. Anyway, I I wanted to get you on this pod partly because like. Yeah, exactly. Keep it light, Thor. I wanted to get you on this pod because I sometimes get asked for corporate MCs, and you're not just an MC. You actually teach MCs. I listened to the whole of that podcast of yours where you're teaching MCs, and it's good stuff. I've done some simple MCing before. I don't build myself as an MC, but I've done some, uh, and I've experienced plenty of MCs. So I, I thought it was an interesting fact that you were actually teaching it but give me give me an idea of what kind of gigs you've done before like any memorable ones any total disasters so so in, in terms of corporate stuff I, I tend to get asked to host events where there's people from diff- lots of different countries because obviously i tour a lot and i got jokes about lots of different countries and i did a kind of because often with these things you you do some jokes then you kind of hand out some awards or you know you introduce the boring stuff yeah and um uh, I did one where this Singapore office was being um, like zoomed in, you know, that they were, they were being added virtually. And I kind of did the normal client meeting. And then just at the very last minute, and this is when corporates can go bad when there are too many people around the table. Yeah. Someone just piped up and just said, so, um, so the representative from the Singapore office said, is there anything which you'd like to pass on to the MC? And she said, yeah. Um, you might not know this, but like Singapore's quite like a diverse country. We've got people from different backgrounds and so and we're quite kind of protective about our food. So like maybe don't joke about food, that might offend people. And firstly, like joking about joking about food is a lot of what I do, right? Like a, a lot of my work is about food. Like we could talk about that MCing. And also, like I've been to Singapore and gigged there a number of times. In fact, I'm gonna be there tomorrow. Uh yeah. and also the rebellious streak in me goes, well, guess what my set's going to be about now, love. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and like, and you, you should always be professional. You should always respect the client's wishes. But sometimes our job is to educate the client. And this is just a really good example of she has no clue. Like she literally, she's never been to one of these events, maybe or never seen this happen. Mm-hmm. She's been asked to chip in. And sometimes corporate culture does this, right? That people have to just justify their place in the meeting. And so yeah. she says something, uh, despite the fact it might not have any, merit right and also because it's about culture and my country no one else in the meeting from her company was to go well that's nonsense yeah. right <laughs> like no one's gonna go no no ignore that that's ridiculous so they went yeah no for cultural sensitivities maybe don't talk about food so obviously i did my material on the singaporean chicken rice it was even it went great um <laughs> did it go great yeah yeah it went really well yeah yeah so i've, I've done yeah. that um, i've done quite a few private events which i tend to do less of now and there's a good business lesson in this that I used to have, this was a, a while back now. This was, I want to say pre-COVID. I had a minimum for a private event of 500 pounds then, which is very low, right? Yeah. But, you know, at the time it wasn't for me, I suppose. But e- yeah, so even 500 pounds is not take this person serious money. And a club which I played at had rented their space out to a bunch of primary teachers and they said, oh, can we have a comedian? And he said, yeah. And when he books the club night, he'll pay his closing acts £100 or £200 maybe. And that's a very normal fee for a comedy club. Whereas yeah. a private event, everything's different. He didn't quite realize this. So he said, yeah, I could find you someone for 100 quid, 200 quid. Of course, no one serious takes it. Um, he then calls me in a bit of a panic saying, I promised someone a comedian. I said, all right, what's the fee? He said, um, what, 100 quid? I went, oh, God, we ridiculous. No, I said, my minimum is 500. And even that's cheap. Right. Yeah. Um, and this was Christmas season where really your minimum's yeah. like a, a, a grand for this stuff. And so he said, Oh, look, it would really, ha-. I said, Look, he said, Will you do it for, t-? he said, Will you do it for, I don't remember what, what we negotiated down to, but I ended up agreeing to 250 and he was going to make up the shortfall. So maybe yeah. he told his client 150 and he was going to put 100 in or whatever. Right. But it's the client, as far as they could see it, were booking a hundred pound comedian. So there's just yeah. no respect whatsoever. <laughs> so, I, so I turn up. The deed. So I, I find out when I'm on that apps. It's an open bar. They're absolutely sloshed. The DJ just stops the music and just goes. So the comedian's going to um, start now. Hands me a mic that is like tethered to the DJ booth. So it's it's yeah. 
It's not a radio mic and it's not a corded mic that's got a cord longer than maybe two meters. So I cannot go near them. I'm like, you know, I'm like a dog on a leash. So I'm stood at the back of the room. I really do my best. Like I really do try and galvanize the room. I try and speak to them all, make a couple of jokes about the situation, but it's basically unplayable. The disco lights are still going. None of, you know, and like now I've learned my lessons, right? If I do one of these corporates now, this was, this was a while back. Uh, But if I were to do a private event or a corporate now, you'd, you'd, see your job to educate the client and you'd send them like, you know, here's a list of things that need to happen in order to make it go well for you. And sometimes people respond as if you're doubting your own abilities. They go, why would you need all if you're this, if you're funny, but you know, mm-hmm. you can talk them through and explain, this isn't like putting a band on in the corner of the room. This is something where I'm going to be talking and people are going to need to be engaged and stand-up comedy is as much about me listening to the crowd. So I need them to be sat and lit and all, you know, so you, you try and explain it anyway. The conclusion of this story is, the head of a discipline who is also a year four math teacher, apparently um, was threatening me with violence so bad uh, that I just left. Uh, <laughs> I just straight up. Just, you were threatened out of a gig by the primary school teachers. It was oh. so bad. It was so bad because I basically started to call out his bullshit, right? Cause yeah. he was just chatting and heckling. And just, I said, if you don't want this, right. You know, you just use your stock lines. I was like, listen, if you want to have a chat, that's absolutely fine, right? But I really want to do my comedy too. So one of us is going to have to compromise and do this outside. And I don't, yeah. I, like, I'm already finding it hard enough inside. So I'd not, I'd rather not be the one that takes everyone else outside to, you know, so you just, you just, you play, use playful yeah. logic like that. Um, whereas he kind of heard, let's take this outside. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you thought you were calling him out for a fight. Well, kind of, and he did, and then like you know, one of the one of the dinner ladies is like, "Leave it; it's not worth it." Kind of, it really was bad. I'll be honest; it really was bad. A couple of takeaways: primary school teachers are the absolute worst. Um, yeah. Like, I don't know where they get them from. Um, and I didn't even invoice. I couldn't even be bothered. I couldn't be. I couldn't be bothered with any back and forth with having no. to justify my. And the only, and the only, the only reason I took it on was because I was on the way to another gig in Bristol. You know, I could do it as a pit stop before going to another one. I remember arriving in that gig and just feeling so nice and safe. that There were three other comics there backstage in the green room and I could just tell my tale and they would get it straight away. Right. Yeah. It's not like if you go back to a, to a family or a friend that doesn't work in comedy that doesn't quite get it, you know, yeah. straight away. I was like, just, just did a private event. This is what, you know, and they were like, Sorry, Ollie. Is there something here about positioning, though? Like you allowed yourself to be pulled off what your real positioning is into something because you thought, well, it's on the way to there. Oh, I'll be fine. You, at first, you probably thought you were going to get 500 quid, which is near bad on your way to something else. So I'm wondering if there's something about positioning. And I guess my question is around marketing. Like, how do you market yourself? How do you market yourself to a small venue or to the punters for a small venue in Prague? How are you marketing yourself? into corporate land like how does that because i'm going to post this and i'll promote it on linkedin and i've got nine or ten thousand followers and who knows it depends how i do it and what the algorithms pick up so there's some marketing and positioning you into potential mc or corporate gigs i definitely should be on linkedin well um the boring answer to this is like any industry comedy is also based on trust right almost every industry is just a way of managing risk and trust right um from you know you know, you hire a company and they hire contractors. Is that company really just acting as a middleman? No, they're acting as a as an insurer against the risk of mm-hmm. that. You know, or you know, why do you pay a professional? Well, because you pay an accountant to do the work. Because ultimately, you've got someone to sue if the work's bad, right? You know, it's an, it's underwriting of risk. Mm-hmm. So I think the same is true for entertainment that uh, you have intermediaries that underwrite that risk. So for my Zoom corporate work, I um, had representation that would you know, vouch for me, right? These are the clients we've worked with. They would say, look, Ollie has worked for brands such as Snapchat and Techstars and blah, blah, blah. And so, um, you know, they, they would kind of act as a, a, a to, to underwrite that, that decision. Cause don't forget people are not optimizing for the best possible show. They're optimizing to not get in trouble, right? Yeah. The people that are booking the act, um, don't get a bonus if the act's brilliant, but they do get called into a meeting, uh, if the act says something that upsets someone, right? So yeah. the incentives are not perfectly aligned for a great night. Um, the way that I kind of market myself is, like I said, I do do a lot of this kind of international stuff. And so I think when there is particularly, you know, cause I speak French and Japanese, but particularly when there's people from lots of different countries, I think I'm known for someone that can handle that fairly 
sensitively, but also realistically, you know, I don't mm. tiptoe. Um, also, I, I do a lot of stuff related to food because of, you know, the stuff with textiles, food and National Geographic food and that kind of stuff. So I think um, people know me for having a good knowledge of food. Well, tell me about that. Textiles and National Geographic. What, what have you done? Oh, yeah, so so te- well, so Techstars food was when I was in Malaysia, um, Techstars, which is a startup accelerator. So I used to be in startups, right? So before I went into comedy, I had a um, a bootstrap startup that I then exited, and I then got funding in uh, Silicon Valley for another startup that ultimately failed. That's the that's the very simple simple way of putting it. But I know the world of startups. I know kind of. Growth and I've I used to do a bit of consulting for companies that um were at kind of seed, let's say series A these days, stage, kind of looking at things like narrative and pitching and mm-hmm. getting their pitch there really. So that's how I was that's how I was in the kind of textiles world and they set up the first food tech accelerator, which I uh emceed and helped to organize and you know was on the uh, panel for that. And then Nat Geo, I got approached couple of this was also pre-pandemic um because at the time i i had quite a bit of food content at a podcast which i plan to bring back um they wanted a comedian to mc their live event which happens every year in london and that's because you have these chefs that are doing live demonstrations Mm -hmm. sometimes the chefs are people that have had lots of media training and they're really good at at a live demo sometimes and again you got to think about incentives uh and how these things come about this festival is ultimately paid for by the sponsors, not by the tickets. And the sponsors, the clients, are generally countries that are looking to market their country. And they might not be the best at choosing someone. They might choose a great chef in their country, and it might mm-hmm. be a great thing to say to someone that's won a Michelin star in some, uh, you know, in in some. Uh, I've got to be very polite here, uh, and I can't. I can't make it seem like I'm giving a specific example away, but you can imagine. Uh, a certain you know a certain european country with, with, and its 10th biggest city and they win a michelin star and they send the hen chef they can cook well but they cannot talk for shit and then yeah. they might even not be able to speak english very well so yeah. having me on stage to you know make it entertaining and ask ask questions and not make them feel embarrassed and making them feel great and making the client happy is, is very important do you cook yeah, so yeah, you i love, I love cooking i love yeah. cooking yeah, yeah I, re- I really do and that's one of the things i regret on tour that often you can't you know often i am eating out a lot um or if i'm staying in hotels or airbnbs you know all the gear's not there but when i'm settled in one place absolutely i love to cook yeah um yeah so but to kind of ask your question i don't really know how i get this work i do have an agent that reps me for this stuff um yeah. but to be honest the, the stand-up circuit is my focus um but yeah the, these things come along every now and again and particularly around christmas time but generally i think th- there are a couple of of more progressive companies do kind of understand the benefits of working with comedians because comedians aren't thick, right? One thing that comedians can do, or one thing that I think a skill that comedians have is empathy. You can't really mm-hmm. tell a joke until you understand your audience. So people in product teams who are looking at things like user personas and building products can help from some of the reasoning of comedians. People in um, marketing c- can obviously learn from 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 comedians in terms of our approaches to storytelling and you know how much information you you reveal to an audience compared to how much you pull back and leadership teams too i think can also benefit from thinking sometimes like a comedian from thinking in terms of presenting information that might be intuitively true to your team but articulating in a way that really resonates because yeah. i think a, a, a lot of leadership is about messaging right it's about banging banging a drum and getting a message home and sometimes using humor or even just using the, the skill set of a comedian um, to a lot of what we do is we make people laugh through analogy, right? We say, you know, you think the world is, a, is like this. Have you not considered that might be for this reason? You know, so, so you, you have to meet in the middle and then you, then you kind of push the paradigm. So, so, so often uh, I do get approached by slightly more progressive business leaders who say, you know, you know, who might, who might bring me on for, for, for these kind of projects, sometimes to do with writing or sometimes to do with, with me as a performer. But yes, you're right. I don't know how I market those services. Like I, I don't have a specific website for it. It's all done on referrals or, or kind of people that have seen me um, because there's um, you know, it, it's not an established industry. Um, the after dinner speaker circuit, that's huge. That's been very established, but I think um, 
agile leaders who are looking to um you know who are looking to to bring in some of these some of these ideas they don't know what to search for right they don't know how to articulate what their need is um yeah. but maybe that's something i should be working on in the new year maybe that should be my maybe and uh, maybe i could bring you in on some of my projects because i work with some of these leaders and i agree with you i have i don't pretend to be a stand up comedian i've done 3 stand up gigs over the years oh that but, counts yeah, that counts that's legit yeah, yeah. I, I trained as an actor 20 years ago, and I use my acting to some degree with the work I do with executive teams. We work on pitch projects. I've worked with startups at MIT. So I was interested to hear your um, – I do business storytelling, pitch work, et cetera. I was interested to hear your startups, as in what were they? What were the – you were involved in two um, startups? What were yes, they? Oh, I was involved in a couple. So first one was uh, – it was B2C SaaS – online language learning software so oh, we cool. we i think we launched at the same time as duolingo i wonder what happened to them um <laughs> I, I, I think we're actually been slightly, slightly heard of them, but, but this i mean this was looking back right yeah this was like bootstraps before that was a cool thing this mm-hmm. was like we were taking payments online before stripe even existed like looking back there were so many challenges that we had to solve in order to get this product to market and i do think yeah. If you start, and we were basically a content business, right? Slight with a slight service element. If you were to, I mean, there's never been a better time to start a content business because all of the problems that we spent loads of energy solving have now been solved. Like yeah. to sign up for a merchant bank account and a credit card gateway just to take yeah, payments man. online. It's crazy. What um, day was that? What, what, kind of, what year was that? Because we incorporated in 2010, I want to say 2011. Yeah. So this is well over a decade ago. Yeah. And so that, that grew. And then it got quite big. And one of my kind of learnings is we the, the team the team did get quite big. Um, well, in relative standards, I think at, at our peak was probably about twenty people, mm-hmm. um, pinging around the Slack channel twenty twenty five. And I did kind of hate it. I hated the fact that you know we had some issue one month, couldn't make payroll, and I was taking out credit cards. All that all that stuff. It's part of the entre- entrepreneurship journey. But I, I genuinely, you know, I would never want to repeat that again. And then we started, we kind of pivoted to do some consulting and B2B stuff. So we worked with pardon me, Oxford University Press for a bit. But I kind of thought none of that, none of that really excited me. You know, and yeah. so that's when that's when we made the decision to exit. It's like, look, we keep pivoting because we'd hit our MRR MR, our targets. And we we knew we were approaching a growth ceiling. So we had to start pivoting either vertically or horizontally. Every little move we made was like, oh, this is work. Uh, so we we sold the business. A, a, a modest exit, I suppose, in startup terms, but still a, a life-changing exit because it meant that I, for the first time, really had freedom to do whatever I wanted mm-hmm. for at least a couple of years. And then, yes, yeah, so, so then started another project almost immediately after, um, you know, within twelve months, um, and that was really what got me out of Japan. The, the the idea that I could I could move to San Francisco for a bit, and that was in kind of le- a little bit of our learnings from our first business. That was in the food logistics space. So basically, so my background originally is in law, right? I trained as a lawyer. And so this is to do with, there was a home-cooked marketplace emerging in America because there was a couple of changes to the law where you could get your home kitchen certified to sell food to the public. So there was all sorts of like compliance problems with that, right? How do you actually check that these home cooks do have the certifications and how do you do the ongoing inspections and blah, blah, blah. So some of the learnings we had from our SaaS, we brought into that space, which is like teaching home cooks how to make sure that their fridge is at the right temperature and, and then also doing some of the logistics stuff too for like how can a co-working space buy 40 home-cooked meals from four different chefs as you can imagine covid absolutely annihilated that business because it relied on co-working spaces and the trust of the cleanliness of the home kitchen <laughs> it's just a real double whammy of boom boom all right well we're, we're done so um yes unfortunately that um that that died a death but it probably, from my perspective, it might be a blessing because I, by that point, I was earning my living doing comedy. I wasn't taking a salary from this business. And, um, you know, since, since that went under, I've now basically really put my foot down with the comedy and with the emceeing and it's gone well. And I've still had the business itch. So I have started another company. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to read you a, a really, a paragraph I sent to a pal in Munich, an idea that I've got, right? And, and I was inspired by I was inspired by you talking about your small town tour of Europe. Um, okay. Before we before I read you that though, and then we'll need to wrap up in a minute because I've got to wrap up at quarter two. Uh, what was I going to ask you, Ollie? Um, 
Oh, yeah. Have you got a bit about entrepreneurship? Because everyone's got a billion-dollar app idea. I've been involved in a few accelerators over the years, but I'm the pitch coach. And these people with their billion-dollar app ideas, and, you, and you're like, are you a developer? Are you a coder? No. Have you got a coder or a developer in your team? No. Like, it just it's literally an idea. They've just brain-farted. Well, I'm yeah. going to have this magic thing that teleports people. It's like, yeah. Oh. Well, I mean, so firstly, I don't, I don't believe, particularly these days, I don't believe to get your idea off the ground, you need a technical co-founder. I think it helps, but like, I, I'm of the view that what matters is the product, not the tech, right? Like, if yeah. if ChatGPT was actually discovered to be a bunch of um, Filipino virtual assistants working really quickly, the product's still great, right? Like, ChatGPT is still a great product. So, like, yeah. it is the product, not the tech. That'd be um, so good if it was that. I'd be so delighted if it was actually that's, human being. That's, that's, why, that's why the board kicked that guy out. He's like, the population <laughs> of the Philippines is only so big. This doesn't scale. Um, We're running out of runway, guys. Not yeah, that's so funny. Um, yeah. So, so I do think um, you know, and like you know, Airbnb is a good example where they had designers rather than technicians, and that they seem to have done okay. Um, but no, I do. I, I don't really talk about entrepreneurship too much because you surround yourself with entrepreneurs, right? That's your world. Most people don't like most people. It is a really foreign, really scary thing. Yeah, yeah, it, it would be true. like me talking about stand up on stage, which I guess is vaguely more interesting, but still, still not like you know, you still it's still not interesting to a general audience. Well, maybe for a corporate gig though. I'm thinking, hundred percent. Right? I'm thinking if you come to a corporate land or any SME land, whatever, like you've got all the jargon and you've been involved in business yourself, you've bootstrapped something, you've brought it to an exit. Like you've got some really interesting experiences that. I think could be extremely funny for a business audience, actually, oh, I, an SME I, I audience. So. You don't want to go corporate, maybe, maybe smaller end of the I spec. Think, I think, I think, I think, well, I think you're definitely right. I definitely, on stage, I do sometimes say, I'm just the ideas guy. I think it's funny to, to yeah. mock those guys. Yeah. Um, I also have a punchline, which is, I, it just occurred to me that um, if, if Jason Derulo was actually Jason Derulo, he could enter new markets more easily. I don't no, get like, it. I'm well, laughing because like, you know, I don't know. Like, but I'm the like, thicker. You know, like, J- like, like, J- like, like, like Jason, the file format. No, I'm well, lost. It's like, 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 it's like a sex, like a, like a CSV. Well, I don't know what CSV it. file is. Well, so, okay, what we've established is that's not funny. And if I do come and do your <laughs> just game, not I'm to promise, me, <laughs> I promise to not. Promise, promise to not. You need a, it. you need a clever audience, right? Here's, here's the idea, right? Here's the idea. Embark on a journey back to the soul of Europe with a Brexit bastard. Witness a <laughs> go on. Witness a Brexiteer's good-humoured evolution, ending up on his own tiny Scottish island, surrounded by young Europeans with broken hearts. Heal your own broken Brexit heart with entertaining anecdotes and challenging perspectives, all aimed at inspiring the audience's collective reflection. Don't miss this unique theatrical experience that goes beyond politics, offering an encouraging post-Brexit path to a hopeful future. The alternative title is. Why assholes should do ayahuasca? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I do think like the Brexit brand is still strong, yeah. right? I think, um, I, well, <laughs> I think it's a good idea. I actually planned. This was a while back. Now, I planned a Brexit farewell tour, and I was working with a promoter to do a gig in every single EU country, one after the other, until mm-hmm. we finally leave. The issue is. We didn't know what the withdrawal agreement was going to be. So we just yeah. kept having like extension after extension. So there was no like definitive moment, you know, I couldn't really no. capitalize on like, we're out. But I did think it'd be a really funny thing to do, to do a Brexit farewell tour. And, Ollie, and I, the, let's, yeah. let's do it. Let's do it together because, let's do it together because uh, I wrote a film called Brexit Bastards back in 2016. It's based on two real characters, uh, a Turkish Muslim oil and gas engineer and an Australian who lived in London at the time. And the Australian was a re- Remainer and the Turkish Muslim was a Brexiteer. True right. story. Both people I know personally, one I worked with as a client and one was a colleague who worked for my then company, right? And irony abounds and paradoxes abound with these two real-life characters. So I wrote the film Brexit Bastards. It's a short film. It was on at the Barbican in 2017, I guess. I sat in that cinema and I had a room, you know, a cinema full of people laughing at this. It's gentle humor, but it's poke fun at both sides, really. And so I do the 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 title Brexit Bastard is, you know, it's my own thing. It comes from something the Australian Remainer said to me. Those Brexit bastards. Too soon? Can we talk about Brexit yet, or is it too soon, my European brothers and sisters? Well, it's funny. Brexit seems to exist in this Schrodinger's hat of like. Brexiteers say it hasn't happened properly yet, 
Yeah. Right. And whereas the people that, that um, lament Brexit happening are already moaning about, well, I can't do this. I can't do that. Yeah. I mean, practically, if we were to tour around Europe, it is actually harder now. Um, we are going to have to get visas and stuff. <laughs> so I'm just saying, you know, if there was... Oh, yeah, no, I because this is a true story. I mean, I voted Brexit for my own, what I feel were good reasons, and a lot of my brown friends voted Brexit too, and that's the funny thing. I can remember being in a queue at Delhi International Airport. I was working with an anti-modern-day slavery charity at the time. I was in Delhi, and I was in the queue for Thank, the version. Thanks for saying it was anti. If you just said yeah, modern-day anti, slavery, yeah. I, I modern day slavery <laughs> as a Brexiteer, I might have gone... Yeah, I'm not sure what I'm not sure what side he's batting for. <laughs> Just double checking which side Thor's batting for. So this Sikh guy in the queue ahead of me though turns around and goes, "All right, mate, how you doing?" And I says, "All right, how you doing?" He goes, "So what way did you vote in Brexit then?" Because this was just after the vote, and I was like. Fucking hell. I'm in Delhi and this seat guy's asking me what way I voted in the Brexit vote. Like, what am I supposed to say here? So I just went, you first. And he went, I'm a Brexit here, obviously. And he started telling me that all his Sikh pals in London. Yes, I've heard. They all voted the Brexit. Minority vote you only, you only one, one Remainer and it was some white guy in his office. He worked for the council in South London. So, yeah, it was a weird one. Isn't, isn't that interesting? Yeah. And, and, and well, pe- people tend to, people have written a lot of think pieces on, on how we have successive Home secretaries of colour who seem to be making the environment that that their family benefited from more hostile. It's yeah. it's a curious one, isn't it? But then again, I kind of see it that like all of the expats that I met living in Japan, all the people that had kind of given up on their lives in their fifties, uh, they <coughs> didn't they didn't want new people fresh off the boat like me enjoying Japan. They were like, no, I, but I, it's only like I, you need to validate my experience of Japan by either not coming yeah. or hating it like I do. Yeah, it's a it's a strange one, but um. Anyway, I'm a I'm a I'm someone who voted Brexit, but I wouldn't now if I had the choice over again, knowing what I know now. There's no way I would vote Brexit. So it's is a, that, is that tied to your thoughts on Scottish independence? Um, it's it's really it's really. I'm just a different person now. I've, I've had a year of, I've been on various ayahuasca journeys this year for a start, which means I'm just pretty much no longer interested in politics. I certainly wouldn't take any side in so-called culture war. I just try and meet everyone with kindness, which I understand sounds incredibly naive and hippy-dippy, but I don't give a fuck. Yeah, that's not cool. And Brexit, I think, has just ended up being a really divisive thing which hasn't really benefited either side. Uh, somebody's benefited. I don't know who it is, but it's not the peasants. And I'm, I consider myself a peasant. It's not peasants on either side of the vote. So as far as I can tell, it was a complete hoo-ha waste of time hasn't brought any particular benefits so yeah not a fan. no well, we, that's the point we haven't really diverged i mean that that is the that is the point like the, the the whole point was we could be making our own laws but actually on trade you don't diverge because you you've got a trade yeah. <laughs> um well that's yeah what a, what a depressing end to this episode no, it's not at all. It's a, it's an invigorating end because I think we'll have an offline conversation about number one, me getting you in to do something for this client and their billionaire people because there's something here about food and comedy in this particular place. That's that worth a fun. second conversation. And the Brexit farewell tour, that is definitely worth a conversation as well because we'd have the combination of you doing pure comedy and me doing my mine would be storytelling with some laughs. But let's just not, call it. Hate, let's just call it what it is. It's a hate rally. That's what it will be. <laughs> yeah, it's a hate rally for Remainers, though. We'll just be getting beaten <laughs> up at the end of the show. Every show will be getting filled in, filled in on every on every small stage in Europe. Yeah, that's yes. that's the dream. Ollie, hammered on every stage. Very good. Uh, well, that's what Thor had. Um, a hammer. Well, I was waiting. I, I, I'm set up for you, mate. Oh, I was well, waiting. I, 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 I didn't know. I didn't, I, did, I, did, I didn't know. Okay, um, now let's play. Let's play that again. Right, hammered on every stage in Europe, Ollie. Thor and Ollie hammered on every stage in Europe. Yes. <laughs> Comedy's all about timing, you see. Oh, I love it. We're going to have loads of dead air. And just these Europeans sat looking at us like, what the fuck? I can't believe uh, uh, maybe, maybe it was for the best they're not part of this club. I'm trying to hold the dead air as long as I can. This, oh, is an eggy, this is an eggy end. An eggy is end. Good. That's, that's food. Here's the thing, right? I'm not going to name the podcast, but a big part of why I had to invite you on my own wee show is I've heard you on a couple of other podcasts. One's your own one, which is fucking excellent. You need to do more episodes, please. I mean, genuinely, really enjoyable, really inside baseball stuff and really good. Oh, but yeah. Me- so that's just a diary. I, I, oh, I, I genuinely it's brilliant. don't. It's lovely. People do listen, but I genuinely don't imagine anyone listening when I'm recording it. 
Well, it's good. No, you can tell. It, and it's it's beautiful. It's really natural. And I've found it genuinely fascinating. So that's the other podcast, which will remain nameless. Do they not understand <laughs> that they have to let each other speak? There has to be some no, dead air sometimes. No, no some absolutely not. I don't think you understand how weaponized autism works. Um, <laughs> it's... Um, well, look, the, I think I think the charm of that the charm of that show is the fact that it's absolute infuriating chaos. Right? It's not supposed to be a relaxing listen. Like it's supposed to be a whole bunch of threads that are being opened up that don't get closed. It's supposed to be you know spending like thirty minutes talking about the most inconsequential thing and then five minutes sorting out the the Palestinian conflict. Like that's that's like. Um, well, look, you're not the first person to, um, to to say that it's it's utterly chaotic, but I, th- I do think that's his charm, and I do hope it continues in that vein, because I know that um, you know that's that's where they flourish. But it's it is fun to be a guest, but also I've got I have got to understand as a guest that I've got to enter their world, you know, I I can't um and just get bullied. No, I get it, I get it, I know, and I still do, I still do listen because I do like them, but. I like it. I know I've interrupted you a couple of times today, so my apologies. But I do oh, like I it. You. Nice, well timed. <laughs> I do. I do like it when people have a chance to finish their thought. I guess is my point. <laughs> yeah. Especially when they're thoughtful, so, like you. You've got a lot to say, which you have sure, a lot. We'll of life don't, don't forget. Sometimes some of these thoughts they have are very toxic, and maybe a best left un, um, under um, under nurtured. Um, That's a good point, Ollie, and a great place to end the show because I've got a call, actually, amazingly, with the owner of that particular ground. Oh, I love that. With Balamori. Literally at 11 o'clock after this. So have a great flight to Singapore. I look forward to thank you. speaking to you again soon, my friend. Yes, thank, thank you, you for coming into the hippie hub. Thanks, man. I would massively appreciate if you enjoy this podcast that you would leave a review or just hit five stars ideally or one star if that's how you feel about it i do appreciate honest feedback thank you so much